Let's run Nation. You got 36 bucks. Then you need to try the Airwave Performance Mouthpiece. It's a relatively new training tool. It launched last year after 16 years of research. Airwave is a performance mouthpiece. It fits along your bottom teeth and pushes your jaw just forward enough to create, quote, the optimal airway opening. This is designed to increase endurance by reducing your respiratory rate up to 20%. That means less lactic acid. It can improve strength by improving muscular endurance. You can get faster recovery times thanks to reduced cortisol buildup to 50%. And since you listen to this podcast, you can save 10%, meaning you'll pay $35.99. Use code LR10 to check this out. Go to Airwave, A-I-R-W-A-A-V.com, link in the show notes, and use code LR10 at checkout to save 10%. R10 at Airwave.com. All right, here's the pod. For the first time in more than three years, the pre-classic has returned to Hayward Field, and oh, what a show. Elaine Thompson-Harris is still on top. Shakari Richardson most definitely is not. Where is she? Courtney Fryricks has gone sub-9. Joshua Cheptegei has won the battle between the Olympic 10 and 5,000 meter champs. Noah Lyles and Andre DeGrasse have run super fast. We'll talk about all of that and much more on this week's edition of the Let's Run Track Talk podcast. Zasha Show and Team Kenya have amazed our world juniors. Sydney McLaughlin opens up on Instagram. And is Tracktown USA a total myth? Let's Run.com co-founder Robert Johnson. Super excited to be here taking a break from vacation because this isn't like vacation to me. I mean, this isn't like work to me. It's fun to talk to you guys. Good to see your face, Jonathan Galt, as well as identical twin brother, Weldon Johnson. That's very nice of you to say, Robert. It's good to see you as well. Glad you could join us. Now, I am curious how much of it is you enjoying talking to us and how much of it is you enjoying hearing your own voice talking to yourself. Is that meant to be an insult, John? I thought you were going to say something even worse, like how much of this is me wanting to get away from my tantrum by my three-year-old toddler. Uh, I will admit the podcast is largely a vanity project for myself. I do like talking to here. I don't know if I like hearing my voice talking. I just like to talk about crazy stuff. And normally the conspiracy theories that go to John Kellogg all week long have had to go to my wife and three-year-old son. So they're probably happy to have me hold up in the corner office here on vacation. All right. Well, I feel bad for your son getting the brunt of those conspiracy theories. But I'm happy to hear some of the less wild conspiracy theories you have. Uh, this week. But folks, before we get into the show, have you signed up for the Supporters Club? I hope so by now. Go to letsrun.com slash subscribe. When you subscribe, great things happen to you. We have another example of that this week. Adrian McDonald, letsrun.com supporting club member, has won the Leadville 100, folks, and his very first attempt at the 100-mile race goes out and wins it. Why? because he supports yours truly. Look, when God's deciding who to make good things happen to, he looks down at the list. He said, who signed up for the Tractor podcast last week? Boom. Thank you, Adrian. We're going to have an interview with him on later in the show. Wow, that's Rojo is pulling a Shakari Richardson, just as she took credit for Shelly Ann Fraser-Price running fast earlier this year. 
Rojo is taking credit for Adrian's incredible accomplishment that had really nothing to do with Robert. But, you know, there's a correlation there. Uh, you know, causation, maybe, maybe not. But, uh, you know, we, you've got a Leadville 100 champ. We have a Boston Marathon champ and two-time Olympian, Des Linden. We've got some... John, we've had a supporters club for... Well, it's, it's probably like we should have the founding day. It's probably like dead on in one year. And in that year, we've had a current supporters club member break the 50K American record. And now win the Leadville 100, which I guess we'll now have to put in like it's it's in the Grand Slam of ultras, right? Of course, obviously now it gets elevated, but maybe we're becoming an ultra running website. But hey, that's pretty impressive if you ask me. And if you're a supporters club member, you get the Friday 15 podcast, bonus podcast every Friday where we break down what's happening on the weekend. And on that podcast, John, did I not say that Shikari, Shikari, that's right, Shikari? Shikari is correct. Yep. That Shakari Richardson will get DFL at pre. I predicted it. All the supporting club members heard it. Just kidding. But that's the story I think we got to start with, guy. Prefontaine Classic. Sure, we can talk about the distance running. Like, what the hell? Matthew Centrowitz. Like, who is he? I even forgot he ran at pre. I don't know. Paul Chulimo. Always in the news. (laughs) But we got to start with the women's 100 meters. And we. it's probably a disservice to lead with Shakari because Elaine Thompson, hurrah. 10.54, that's crazy. We used to think, you know, like 10.7 was a fast time. But that's Flojo territory. It's the world record, according to track and field news. The Bible of the sport does not recognize Flojo's 10.49. So this is the fastest non-wind-dated 100 meters ever. She goes out, absolutely effing dominates. But all of America... And Nike was more probably shocked by Shakari Richards and DFL. Yeah, well, can we talk first? Let's talk about Elaine Thompson Hurrah first, because this is, like you said, well, this is basically the world record in the women's 100 meters, one of the biggest events in track and field. And if you guys haven't read the week that was yet, Robert did a terrific job breaking this down. He not only explained, you know, how Thompson Hurrah's mark is basically superior to Flojo is because of the win, but then he also got into sort of the top times this year, correcting for wind and that sort of thing. And his argument actually was as impressive as this run at pre was, it might not have been Elaine Thompson Hurrah's best run of the season because she ran this with a with a tailwind and her run at the Olympics was 10-6-1, but that was into a headwind. And so According to Jonas Mareka's wind conversion calculator, her run in Tokyo was 10.57 in still conditions, and her 10.54 in Eugene equates to 10.59. So, you know, it, it might be the world record, but it's also not even her greatest performance of the year, which just shows you how phenomenal Elaine Thompson here is right now. Yeah, and that poor piece, Weldon just said it's crazy that she ran this fast. In all honesty, we probably should have been expecting the 10.5 because g- given how well she she ran in Tokyo. So Fulger ran the 10.49, but folks, it, any smart person would realize that has to be 180 because like everybody in that prelim went way faster than everybody else who was in the quarterfinal at USA's. She did run a 10.61 with a nice tailwind behind it. But this is better than that. She equaled the 1061 at the Olympics, and that was better. To, it's a shame that it's not considered to be the world record. We should we should move that 1049 to a wind-aided time and, and just be on with it. But she was amazing. 
But I, I, I love the passion here. I think I saw more passion. I would have to go back. Maybe my memory's wrong. I sometimes do have a faulty memory. But John, when she won the 100, did she show this type of passion? Like, was it the time that made her so passionate? Or was it the stomp down of Shakari Richardson that made her so passionate? Because it seemed to me that she was more pumped about this than she was the Olympic gold. It was interesting. I'd like to know what she was looking at specifically because she crossed the finish line and she immediately had let out this scream and was like very excited. And then she sort of calmed down immediately. And for the next like 10 or 15 seconds, didn't seem to be going too crazy. And then she was just looking at the scoreboard. I assume waiting for her time to pop up. I don't think it was, you know, seeing Shakari and lost that made her go crazy. And I, Think when she saw 1054 come up on the big screen, she went nuts again and totally crazy. I'm trying to forget how I'm trying to remember exactly how excited. I mean, she was pretty excited when she won the Olympics, too. But 1054 is just oh, it's crazy. And I think this is the time she said, you know, she felt she was capable of 1054 of 105 because she ran 1061 while pointing at the clock in Tokyo. This one now we have a tailwind, but I don't think it's a given that she was gonna run this. I mean. We in other events we saw the Olympic champ come out and look totally flat. Like Thompson Hira, she ran 100, 200, and the relay in Tokyo. hadn't raced since. It's perfectly acceptable if you're an Olympic champ to come out and be kind of flat or be fatigued from the travel to come out and run even faster than you did in Tokyo. That that's pretty impressive. It's very impressive. But I think one of the things why I sort of expected a good performance was I knew, based on their reaction to the questions about Shakari Richardson in Tokyo, they were not going to be going through the motions in this one. They were motivated. This was personal. And they put Shakari down in her place. She, I mean, she was running hard through the line. I mean, maybe she knew she had a fast one, but there was no And I And I said, tried to get about this at the week that was. Think about what was at stake here. Even though you're the double, double Olympic champion, if she loses this race, like people would just be for totally almost forgetting about the Olympic titles, maybe not in Jamaica, but people would be like she carries the should be the Olympic champion. And instead, so there was like nothing to gain. Well, I, I shouldn't say there was nothing to gain because she did gain a lot by that 10, five, four, but there was a lot at stake here, a lot to lose. And she delivered and it was just great drama. So congrats to her. The Jamaicans go one, two, three, but what was, probably as shocking if not more shocking and it's maybe it shouldn't have been it's kind of like the elaine thompson like if you really look at it maybe we should have expected the 10-5-4 was shakari finishing dfl because it was a disaster she was never she got a decent start but then she just farther and farther behind and you know i also pointed this out in the week that was two years ago when her at the usa's she got DFL. She actually ran even slower there. I think she ran like 11.7. So maybe we should have realized her history is if it goes bad, it goes really bad. But I was stunned in the moment to see her finish DFL. I mean, I was stunned to see her finish DFL as well. I do seem to remember there was someone on this podcast on Friday who said that Thompson Hurrah and Shelly Ann Fraser-Price are really sick shape right now and that Shakari only had a 10% chance at winning. And that person was criticized for that take. Uh, I don't know if I've been vindicated or not, but I will say I didn't expect her to get DFL. I thought she would be at least semi-competitive. And did she not train the last month? Did she just think, okay, I'm not running at the Olympics? Like, that's a lot to deal with. That's obviously a huge mental stressor. But I thought her run was pretty embarrassing. This was She was hyped up as like she was going to take on the Jamaicans. 
She's running on home soil. This is a track where she ran, you know, 10-8 a few weeks ago, you know, earlier in the summer, 10-6, windy. I thought everything was set up for her to run well. And she was just not competitive at all. It was shocking. And then she gave this interview. I think Weldon has it queued up. This was her post-race reaction when uh, Lewis Johnson corralled her track side. I'm not upset at myself at all. <laughs> this is one race. <laughs> I'm not done. <laughs> you know what I'm capable of. Caveat if you want to. Talk all the shit you want. Because I'm here to stay. I'm not done. I'm the sixth fastest woman in this game ever. And can't nobody ever take that from me. Congratulations to the winners. Congratulations to the people that won. But they're not done seeing me yet. Period. I mean, that interview was epic. And you've even got one of the biggest now track and field memes of, well, not all time. Oh, you can say all time, right? We haven't had track and field memes for that long. But you got Shelly Ann Frazier kind of walking behind smiling. Who knows what she was smiling at? But Shakira, to her credit, has now taken that meme and made it her Twitter profile. So I was so shocked about this race. My parents were in town. We went over to their friend's house or have grandkids. And I was like, okay, I got to sneak away into the bathroom and watch this thing. I decided against it. I get back. Robert calls. He wants to know if I've seen the race. He's talking to my mom on the phone. And I, I, he instructs her to record me watching this race. And I'm like, oh gosh. And then I glance at my phone. I had avoided everything. And I see a text from John, something about Shakari's race. And I'm like, okay, wow. Damn it. She must like crush them. Wonder if world record 10 fives. I'm just trying to think like, damn it. I'm, I can't be excited. So I'm in a foul mood watching this thing, figuring something huge has to happen, you know, but I, I, I did not expect that. I just see the gun go off and I'm like, what the hell, man? And I think what you saw there was her defense mechanism. Alan Abramson of three wire sports has written an article essentially like, is this a cry for help? And I don't think it is. I think the bravado, a lot of that, sure, a lot of times the most braggadacious person, there is a lot of insecurity there behind it. But this right here, I think she got out there on the world's biggest stage and embarrassed herself. And so what do you do? The little dog's got to bark, right? I think that's what you heard here. It was the immediate reaction. Because afterwards, in the mix zone, she w- congratulated the other women. She apologized for her voice, her um, language. And I, I don't know if we want to go there now, but I thought she um, had better perspective than Sydney McLaughlin. And for the record, guys, it's McLaughlin. We received an email from a New Jersey track coach who said Sydney's dad's a track coach. They always say McLaughlin, and no matter how it's spelled. And John pointed out he found. Uh, Sydney's signing on New Balance, and she pronounces her last name McLaughlin. Arita found that. I, w- I won't take credit, but Arita contacted me on that. Uh, so I have two things on Shakari here. One, I think there is going to be a certain faction. I've seen this float out. This isn't like a dominant narrative yet. There are some people going to say, oh, she's a choker. Because, like Robert said, USA's in 2019, DFL. Pre-classic 2019, she ran horrible. This was after she ran 10.75 to win NCAAs. And then this summer, she she won the Olympic trials, but then comes out, this is her biggest race of the year outside the trials. She gets DFL in 11.14. She ran 
two in April, never ran faster. So I don't think that's she's 21 years old. I don't really think that's a fair narrative to brand her with just yet. She ran, she delivered at the Olympic trials. She ran well there. She won that race. She didn't run well here, but she hasn't been to a global championships yet. Those are the races we measure people by. I don't think calling her a choker. I don't really know if that's a fair label just yet. That's absurd. That's absolutely absurd to call her a choker. That's a narrative. I haven't seen that anywhere. Give me a break. At 19, she won the NCAA title. And then she, she didn't win USA's. I mean, that's pretty much to be expected. It actually makes me appreciate what I think Mo did this year. Just roll through one meet after another. You could have a hiccup. So two years ago, she was amazing at NCA's as a freshman. Oh, and we're asking her to, she didn't win the world title, the USA title. That was a mistake. No. And then this year she wins the Olympic trials in dominant fashion and is not allowed to compete. So Yes, I'm shocked that she lost the form that quickly, particularly with the height. Maybe some of it was getting to her, but to me, it just looks like she peaked too early for the second straight time. You know, 2019, she peaked a little bit early. Same thing here, but she's young, and it could have something to do with her personality. Think about how raw and authentic she is. She just, she's into the moment. Like, maybe that's training. You sometimes can't be into the moment. You got to, maybe you shouldn't be going 100% in April. You got to just hold back just a little bit so that you get that, get your peak right. But, what I most love about Shakira is she doesn't try to run and hide when things don't go well. And this is what I wrote in the week that was. She's the same win, lose, or draw. You need to own your decisions, and she does. It drove me nuts in Tokyo when Sam Kendricks tested positive for COVID and then wouldn't admit it he wasn't vaccinated. If you're going to go unvaxxed, at least admit it. Don't run and hide when things go well. If you're going to be outspoken and talk a big game, well, you know, I, some people don't like the, the interview after the fact. I'm, she's the same person, win, lose, or draw. You know, so the fact that she put up the picture of, if you guys haven't seen it, we'll link to it in the show notes. Check out her Twitter profile. She's got Elaine Thompson, Hera, I mean, Shelly Ann Fraser Price walking behind her. She does her interview on national television in America. The international viewers probably didn't see this. And Shelly Ann Fraser Price just has an amazing smirk, like, mm-hmm. And she carries embraced that and put that, made that as her Twitter profile. So, I kind of, it's amazing to me. I, in my mind, I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. Shikari is now the Dallas Cowboys, is like the Dallas Cowboys in the NFL. It almost doesn't matter how she runs. She's still popular. She's still a story. Like the Cowboys actually aren't any good anymore. I actually think Shikari is good, but the YouTube algorithm loves Shikari. I mean, she, she got, it's got like 400,000 views. Like no interview we've done gets more than like a couple thousand. Most of it get a couple hundred. I think the Jacob Anderson got about like 20,000 views. This thing's got 400,000 views. 513,000 now, Robert. It's crazy. And yeah, you can like Shakari, You can hate Shakari. She's good for the sport. She draws eyeballs to it. People have an opinion on her. It's great. She is a huge talent. I think she'll win the U.S. title next year. I'm not saying she's going to win the Worlds because Jamaica has the two best sprinters ever pretty much going right now in Thompson Hurrah and Fraser Price. But that that's the other thing I wanted to talk about here is there is discussion, and I've pro- I've been part of this, of sort of the rivalry between Shakari and Thompson Hurrah and Shelly Ann Fraser Price. But we actually, we haven't, look, we saw Shelly Ann Fraser Price was sort of smirking when she was walking off the track and watching Shakari get interviewed. We don't know why she was smirking. I mean, there is, you can draw a conclusion yeah, okay, she thought it was funny that Shakari was getting interest, interviewed after getting dead lost. 
might have been about something totally different. We don't totally know. When they're asked about Shakari, they mostly just defer and don't want to talk about anyone else. So I don't know. If I had to guess, I would say there is a bit of a rivalry there and that they liked putting her in her place. But we don't know that for sure. That's more us basically just kind of speculating off of how they interact with the media. Well, I've been on vacation. I haven't had time to read any of these post-race interviews, so watch any of them. Did anyone talk to Elaine Thompson here or Shelly Ann Fraser-Price and ask them about Shakira? I was interested in what they said about her after this race because in Tokyo, they wouldn't talk about her. Elaine Thompson here was asked about her in the mix zone and she basically said she's not going to talk about someone else. You know, she didn't want to talk about her. So she did a non, no comment, essentially. I didn't see anything about anyone asked Shelly Ann, but I'm not totally sure on that. I'll play a clip from Shakira from the mix zone. Because I think you'll see how 20 minutes later, she's not nearly as emotional. And I think she'll be fine from this. And also a good thing, if she's out of shape, she said she's racing a few more times this year. So this isn't it. We're probably going to see another matchup like this. you know, Or m- maybe she goes back to training. Her coach, Dennis Mitchell, assesses her. And it's like, you're not ready. Because pre's one you're not getting out of no matter what. I mean, it's in your Nike contract. you got to run it pretty much for most people there was a couple nike stars who didn't run pre but usually they do but i'm gonna play this clip via texas runner girl who was in the mix zone for let's run.com so shakari was asked do you consider yourself a role model yes i do at this point i have accepted that role because of the fact people need someone and I have to learn that. I've learned that. Like people need that. Somebody has to be able to step out there and be that that sacrifice, that one to lead the way. And I have no problem with that sacrifice. I'll take all I'll take all of that. If that means the generations after me can come into this game feeling like themselves and it's and express that. They don't feel like they have to be in the public. They don't feel like social media is is pressuring them and crushing them because at the end of the day, you are who you are and you have to hold on firmly to that. Because if not, the world will crumble you down. So I'm standing tall. <laughs> I thought those were some interesting words. She talks about the social media pressure. She's like, essentially, I'm fine with it. If you if you don't know who you are, you'll get crushed. And then it comes out yesterday. Sydney McLaughlin, McLaughlin has this pretty emotional. I don't want to say it's a cry for help, but she recorded this video a couple days after the Olympic trials where she breaks the world record. And in it, I mean, we got to play some clips from it, I think, or at least essentially she's like, my friends, my family, people. I have some quotes here, Weldon, that I can read off. This is one of them. She said, I felt like the people I thought would be the most excited for me literally almost didn't even care that she broke the world record. And I have some really great people in my life that love me more than I can say some family loves me. I'm just going to be real. It hurts. I'm still to this point, just not understanding when it's going to be enough for a lot of people. And then she's also talked about social media. She has a lot of followers, but she said, I'm grateful for the platform. I'm grateful to be able to reach people, but I don't want it. Like when I tell you, I don't want fame. I don't want any of that. It's toxic. It genuinely physically makes me sick. When I got back on social media for three or four weeks before the trials, I started getting anxiety because you look and you're looking at what everyone everybody else is doing what everybody else is posting how many followers they have it physically makes you sick i don't want that i don't want the fame i just want a little bit of respect and one last thing she said is 
you know, she is very well compensated, obviously, by New Balance. She has, and she gets a lot of attention on these US track and field broadcasts, you know, the Olympics or any sort of US meet. They'll always talk about and interview Sydney McLaughlin, McLaughlin, sorry. And this is for a couple reasons, but, you know, she's obviously a humongous talent. But also, she pointed out, it blows my mind. People who have been my teammates who have watched me die every day at practice believe that I'm standing here today because I have followers. I can't control who presses the follower button, but it can control what I do on that track. And that's the thing that doesn't get respect and it blows her mind. She, it sounded like there are people in her life who say she gets this attention and money and fame, not just because she's good at running, but because she has a lot of social media followers, because she's beautiful. Even, she said, because she's a light-skinned african-american woman so it was it was a very interesting video i'd recommend you you listen to it because sydney mclaughlin is normally someone who's very guarded in interviews she puts on a very nice face doesn't put her a step wrong and this was a side of sydney mclaughlin we'd never seen before yeah it was tough to watch i mean there's so many people i don't know on top of the world that aren't enjoying it you know um go back and watch the tape when Sydney sets the world record and wins the Olympic gold. It didn't look like she was having a good time. And, you know, buddy who texted me about that at the time, it's kind of crazy. And, you know, um, Simone Biles and others, it's like, it's too much for it. That's why I actually find Shikari, Shikari, whatever you think of her, she's at least enjoying it. She enjoys, she enjoys being the social media star and maybe she's more going to be, you know, she's almost at this point, some, uh, I don't think it's fair. Someone could say she's more a reality star than she is track star. I don't think that's fair at all because if you adjust for the wind, she ran a 10.69. She actually had the second best mark of anyone in the world at this point this year. She just didn't get her peak right. And she's faster at her age than Elaine Thompson-Hare was or Shelly Ann Fraser-Price. But, you know, Sydney is not back to Sydney. She's not the first person that's really struggling sort of seemingly on top of the world, but it's not satisfying. Social media is tough. You know, and I think some people are like, oh, you've got to be on social media. The brands demand it. I don't know if that's really true. First of all, just let New Balance handle her damn brand, her tweets, and just send out a couple tweets once or twice a month and do no nothing personal on there. You'll still have followers or have New Balance tweeted out and just get off of it. Don't do it. Delete it off your phone. I mean, that's what Nick Willis said. You know, he, there's a great video about how to handle the pressure. Now, Nick grew up at the end of this era, obviously. You know, I mean, he grew up before this era, social media really took off. But he's like, look, when I would get to the Olympics, I just took, put my phone away. It was just me and my wife or me and my coach. And I realized, you know, whatever. So it's kind of crazy that I'm, when I watched that McLaughlin video, I was like, how could people not respect her? She's the world record holder in Olympic champions. So, Sydney, if they're not respecting you, that's on them. That's not on you. But I hope that she does takes, learns to enjoy this because she's a magical talent. But, you know, it's crazy. And by the way, folks, I don't want to get this into a political rant, but there's racism on all sides. This proves that even black people discriminate against other black people based on how black or how white they are. Well, one thing, Robert, she did say one of the lessons she's learned. And remember, she just turned 22 in August. You know, she's still she's been in the spotlight for a long time, but she's only 22. So she said one of the things she's learned is to try to not let her uh, other people's opinions determine her self-worth or let them influence her that much. And I think she deserves praise for she, she has lived up to everyone's expectations of her at the age of 21. She had set the world record twice, including once in the Olympic final and won two Olympic gold medals. She won a second on her 22, 22nd birthday. 
that's that's exactly that's what most athletes dream of accomplishing in their career and she's done it by the age of 22 so it's pretty phenomenal she's obviously got a very bright future and i hope that she you know it would be nice i hope that she's working through this and that can emerge stronger mentally and physically because she's a tremendous talent and it's really fun to watch her race the city thing's fascinating to me because she says she doesn't want the social media stuff doesn't care about that but then she releases this video on social media saying she's not respected enough and not just by randos but by family and friends and she's a very religious person and talks about how she does it for god and jesus and i'm no theologian but like Ultimately, anyone in sport, if you're doing it for the validation of others, that's not the right reason to do it. And she realizes that on one level and says that, but then at the same time is sort of like crying out, like, I'm not getting the respect I deserve. Um, But I think she does, by and large, get the respect. The track and field people, we know she's amazing. I'm just going to play a clip about the respect. When I got back on social media for not being on for three or four weeks before the trials, I started getting anxiety because you look and you're looking at what everybody else is doing, what everyone else is posting, how many followers they have, and it physically makes you sick. I don't want that. I don't want the fame. I would just like a little bit of respect. We don't have to be best friends. You may not agree with my message, but in the sport, at the age of 21, To be a two-time Olympian and a world record holder, I would just like a little bit of respect. Just a little bit. I think she gets the respect. I don't know. But I think, I remember reading something, I, I was trying to find this, about some diver. He got like a, I think Phil like didn't get the gold, he got a silver. And he went back home afterwards and his life was exactly the same. He thought it would radically change and it just was like, wait, I've done my whole life for this? And I probably that's what Sydney's she's 21. That's crazy how young she is. She's crushing world records. And I, I, whatever happened wasn't what she thought was going to happen. And but I think she's grounded. Hopefully with her faith and stuff, she can just keep a bigger perspective. But it's interesting that this whole thing is carried out on social media these days. But Noah Lyles talked about the pressure. Any psychologist out there want to be on the podcast and say, you know, how can we help these athletes? Because we had. Let's see. Noah Lyles publicly. People are speculating about Shakari, what state of mind she's in. Simone Biles. I mean, like these are the absolute stars at the top of the sport. A couple of them doing, you know, as good as you can do. You can't do any better than she's doing. Yet after the Olympics, after she breaks another world record, she decides to release this video. It's just fascinating. But mental health, and I think it is directly related to social media. It's a huge problem for this generation that came of age with smartphones. Well, I think she's good. She did it in person. I, well, I think it's a little strange. She put social media. She doesn't want to be on social media, but she does on social media because that's the only way to reach people. And it sounds like it's the people closest to her. They're the ones that that's the ones whose respect she wants. So screw them. You're hurting her. She's letting that known. I, I thought it was cool that she did it, but let's move on to some other things at pre-classic. We talked about, we could go to the sprints, but I think we should go to the distance races. I mean, no Lyles, Andre DeGrasse, we need to talk about that. But come on, this is mainly a distance, known for our distance expertise, our website is. So let's go there. Because I was thinking, what are the biggest stories? What will we remember 10 years from now from pre? 
if anything. And I think this 100-meter race will definitely be remembered forever, as will the women's steeplechase in the sense of it produced the first sub-nine-minute clocking in U.S. history. Courtney Fyrex runs, you know, backs, validates her silver medal, runs 8.57. Um, so congrats to her, but is actually sort of beaten handily in this race by the woman I've said all along is the best steeplechaser on the planet, Nora Geruto. It's an absolute disgrace that Miss Geruto has never been to the Olympics. She doesn't want to run for Kenya. World Athletics won't let her move to Uzbekistan, or is that where it is, John? Kazakhstan. Excuse me, Kazakhstan. Um, you know, Paul Chalimo can run for America, but she, for some reason she can't run for Kazakhstan. But she ran great, fantastic, 8.53. But... Um, you know, we were talking about this last week on Wednesday's show and Friday's show. I was thinking, let's analyze this. Like, who has the most to win or lose here in, in this meet? You know, if Shakari wins, it would have been huge. I really thought that this women's steeple, when we thought Emma Coburn was going to be here, who's going to be the first American to break nine? Is it Coburn or Fryrix? Coburn doesn't run. Fryrix gets it. Pretty great stuff there. Yeah. I, I Part of me... I'm very happy to see Courtney get the record. It was a great run, a deserving run. But part of me is upset. I wish Emma could have been in the race because those two have been have had such a great rivalry. I mean, well, okay, the results, Emma's pretty much dominated Courtney for most of the last decade. It's 16-2 head-to-head. But they've pushed each other to a higher level. And seeing them go 1-2 in London in 2017, that was incredible. But, you know, I just think it would have been fitting to see Coburn have a chance to to get that American record back and to race her. Um, but instead, you know, Courtney Frerichs runs amazing. And part of me is sad that this, the sub nine chase is now is it's gone. You know, it's something that's motivated both of them ever since, you know, Courtney said ever since Emma took it under nine ten in 2016, that she's like, okay, the next target is sub nine. Who's going to get that first. And they've both pushed towards it. And it was always something that I would think of whenever I'd see him run a steeple are we finally going to see an American sub nine? And it was awesome that Frerichs got to do it in front of fans at the pre-classic on home soil. But, you know, the, the next barrier, there's nothing going to be as significant unless, you know, one of them can get the world record, which kind of looks out of, out of reach. So part of me is sad that that chase for sub nine is over, but I was glad that I got to, you know, see Frerichs break it. This is going to sound crazy, but how much should Nike have prevented Miss Gerudo from running in the race? Would have been a much better TV moment, much better for the Eugene crowd if the American had dominated the race and got sub nine. I'm not going to lie, particularly on national TV, because they didn't really show Fryricks. They were they crossed the finish line and they more focused on the winner. I wanted to see Fryricks. So in the U.S., they were they were the TV camera. I guess was the international feed. They were using Nord. They were focused on Geruto. I mean, I'm happy that they opened it up, but it would have been a little bit cooler if she had won the race, right? Yeah, but they shouldn't have prevented her from running. This, you know, you want to get the best field. They had the Olympic champ. They had the Olympic silver medalist. They had the Olympic bronze medalist, Hyvin Kiang, who just misses breaking nine minutes again. Here is Hyvin Kiang's three fastest times. Nine flat point zero one, nine flat point zero five, which she ran at pre, and nine flat point zero point one two. She's never broken nine. That is that's pretty devastating. Uh but no, th- actually, Robert, your comments get to a like a larger cr- I saw this a lot on Twitter after the meet of a lot of American track people. I don't know. There are international people as well. I'm actually be interested. We do have some international listeners. What 
people in it, like did you see any interviews on this broadcast because normally when we watch a regular diamond league like overseas there are no interviews during the meet but when nbc is covering it we get post-race interviews with the americans and a lot of people were saying how dare they only talk to the americans like they only talked to frericks and not norwich rudo they didn't talk to elaine thompson here they talked to, Sh- to Sh-Kerry richardson instead and they're like they should be talking to everyone and i think there are a couple things to say here because one You can't talk to everyone. There is not enough time in the broadcast to be talking to like two or three people per event. You have to pick and choose. And American fans who are watching the pre-classic, do they want to hear more from Elaine Thompson-Hera, who just ran 10.54, second fastest time ever, or do they want to hear from Sha'Carri Richardson and see what the hell happened in that race? I'd say it's about 50-50. I think people, they really want to hear, people are saying, we should be talking to just the winner. Well, people want to hear what Sha'Carri has to say as well. She's one of the reasons this meet's so popular. Same with Frerichs. Would you rather hear from Nora Giruto, who ran 8.53, and she's now, it's the second second fastest time ever by someone who hasn't been popped for doping. Or do you want to hear from Courtney Frerichs, the American who just broke the nine-minute barrier for the first time? I would say most American viewers would want to listen to Frerichs. People are saying, like, this is a bad thing. I don't know. you got to kind of know your audience, right? John, people just need to stop with this. Of course, Shakari got interviewed. This woman was on the Today Show before. I think she might have been even on after the race. She might have been on yesterday again. I'm not sure about that. No, actually, no. I saw a clip they talked about it on the Today Show, and they're showing her old interviews. But this is the most recognizable track and field athlete in America. Sorry, Sydney McLaughlin. Um, or at least, uh, yeah. I mean, the Olympics just happened, and more people want to know what's going on with Shakari. So that's a no-brainer. And I don't know. You, if you, you want to, even that's, oh, racism or something that, uh, no, it's just called, um, you know, Americanism, American exceptionalism. People want to hear from the American record holder who broke the record. No one in America knows who Nora Gerudo is. Is it fair? No, it's called life. So it's just, I don't know. And also one thing with pre, it was race after race after race. They'd come back from commercial and they were on the gun. I'm like, did they cram the TV window was only an hour and a half on NBC. So I think the races were more tightly compact because I'm like, wow, there, there's no time to even build up the drama. It's just like shoot off the gun, which people, you know, the let's run junkies say they always want, they don't want any of the stuff, but I think you, you needed to build a little tension before the storm. So, but great run by Courtney. And I got no problem with her being interviewed after the race. It was the sub nine barrier has been out there for a long time and she finally got it. And it's kind of crazy. Also after the Olympics, my perception of Courtney changed. Sure. She had the American record. You can't run that fast and have it be a fluke, but I kind of thought that was her max. I mean, her three K PR is still eight forty seven. She's run eight fifty seven over barriers, you know, whereas Coburn's really lowered. It wasn't really till this year, but I think she's run, 839 it says but that was in a two mile so she can probably run 835 but they race now i'm picking for eric's and i I wouldn't have said that before pre but now 100 i think she's the better runner and it'll be really interesting to see what happens to emma you know why did she pull out of this race is she going to try to do the diamond league final that sort of stuff can she beat courtney or does Courtney have the upper hand? And it could be permanently because she's younger. It's a great storyline heading into a home world championships next summer. Let me just chime in about this, who they interview. Of course they interview Shakiri. 
Now I probably would have I would have probably interviewed Elaine Thompson here as well since she basically set the world record. But it's an American broadcast, and it's basically like t- the way track is presented is it's Team USA versus everybody else. I know they're running for Nike, Adidas, etc. That's just the way it works. Um, that that's pretty you know self explanatory to, to to me. I, I don't understand why that's controversial in the least. Well, a lot of people are saying I've seen this from pro athletes on Twitter and some observers of the sport, just we need to tell the stories of athletes outside of the Americans. You know, it's a global sport. You know, we can't just pretend Elaine Thompson Harris doesn't exist or Nora Gerudo doesn't exist. Or, you know, Joshua Cheptegei or any of these guys, you know, you, you need to promote athletes outside of the United States because it's a, it's a global sport. I agree with that. They, they, they do. And I, I didn't have time. You know, I wasn't watching the NBC broadcast. If I was NBC, I would play up the stars of the sports I don't know if they did that because I didn't watch it or they just play up the Americans. But the reality is, look, I back until my son was born, I used to watch a lot of Baltimore Orioles games. Not once have they ever interviewed a player on another team. Not one time. They only interview the Orioles after the game. I always thought it'd be kind of cool. Like, hey, can we go over to the Yankees dugout and get one or two interviews from the stars of their game? They never do that. It's an Orioles broadcast. Now, this is a Prefontaine broadcast, but you ought to really think of it as NBC is focused on Team USA. That's where they mainly focus on. Occasionally, they'll do somebody else, but, you know, it is what it is. In terms of the action, I, I do think there's too much action in these meets. I've always said this. You don't need that many events. People say Too much action? What? Yes. This is insane. This is insane. This is a loaded field, race after quality race. You guys say, there's not enough time to build the tension. There's too much action. This is a ludicrous take. They need to build the storylines. I think one thing when I broadcast is I, for every event, I gave you the storyline. It's clear what the storyline is for the event. And when I was, I, literally, I was driving a car. The storyline for some of these events is not clear to me. Again, I turned it on at one point. Every time I turn it on, I, it's like in the middle of an 800 broadcast. I heard um, them say, oh, we expected the Kenyans to dominate this race. I was like, what? That was Shania uh, Richard Ross saying that. Why would anyone expect a minor career to dominate that race? I know he was the Olympic champion, but A, he barely won the race. Barely won it. So uh, I think that's the type of race, if you run it 10 times, it's going to be different. I would have said, like, if anyone, I would have thought Ferguson Chariot were gonna win, was going to win that race. He ended up second. Marco Arop, by the way, congrats to you from Canada. Doesn't even make the Olympic final. Dominates that field. And we're going to have another... Matchup, basically the same runners again in Lausanne, I think, tomorrow. So that should be exciting. All right, other distance races. Robert, I just want to chime in here. You're saying you want more time in between events. Well, guess what, buddy? You got it in Lausanne. We're going to have some nice gaps in there, 17 minutes between the women's 400 hurdles and the men's 200, another 17 minutes between the men's 200 and the women's 4 by one And guess what? That means there's no time in the broadcast window for Carsten Wilhelm running the flat 400, which might be the most intriguing meet of the entire meet. So plenty of time to build the tension in the storylines in Lausanne on Thursday. Have they not changed that yet? I just kind of figured that's a no-brainer. They're going to change that. We need to start a social media campaign. Just start tweeting out what we have what? Oh, my God, it's tomorrow? Yeah. It ain't going to happen. Okay. we, John, get this thing going. Like... Holy crap, we need intern Carl back to get our social media going. Just like, but seriously, people need to make an out, outrage on this. Like, man. Okay, back to pre. Men's two mile. I didn't think they hyped this story up very well either. They didn't really say, hey, we've got the Olympic 10K. We've got the Olympic 5K champ. This is what it's about. You know, that's the storyline. That's what we want to see. That's what it came down to. Um, I mean, I, I think you're supposed to read between the T lines. To me, if I'm an announcer, I'm making that obvious. That's what this race was about. That's what it came down to. And Joshua Chepta got the world record holder in the five. 
Amatin, right, gets the win over Borrega, which I think was a surprise to some people, which is a little bit weird because, you know, Sheptegai did win the 5,000 at the Olympics. Borrega won the 10. Borrega didn't run the 5. So people thought, look, his kick looks so good in the 10. Sheptegai is more of the longer distance guy. Borrega is viewed as the more shorter distance guy. But in two miles, which is shorter than 5K, it's Sheptegai on top. And after this race, I thought to myself, how in the world did Sheptegai lose the 10,000, John? Because I think coming into this race, you and I both thought Borrega had the edge here, right? In this in this two mile? Yes. Well, my theory is I think Cheptegai does very well if you can get a lap or two, a hard lap or two in before like the last lap. He can still run close in about 55 seconds off of basically any pace. He's just such, he's an aerobic monster. And Borrega, if you look at the 10K, I think there was still a bunch of people like right in there at the bell in in Tokyo. I think he's better, like pure all out speed. I think Borrega probably has a better kick. He closed in what, 53 to win that race. I guess, you know, Cheptegai closed around that to win Worlds in 2019. But I just think Cheptegai, is very, he's, his kick is not dulled very much if you put in a hard move or two before the bell. Um, but also, the, the, the guy's really good. Like, he won the two-mile... He outkicked Paul Chalimo to win the two-mile at Pre in 2019. You know, he outkicked Yomiv Kajelcha, who's a 347-miler, to win the 10K in Doha in 2019. Like, the, the guy can kick. Uh, I... If this had been like a super slow, if this had been like an eight thirty race, I probably would have taken Borrega. But eight oh nine, you know, that's a pretty. It's it's not slow. I think Cheptegai winning. Yeah, it was a minor surprise, but he's also damn good. Yeah, I think Cheptegai maybe was doubting himself in Tokyo that ten thousand a little bit, John. You know, like he it looked like he had a lot left in the last one hundred. Just and he was talked to us a little bit about, about worried about his injury. Right? Mm-hmm. I I don't know. It just seems to me like look. The world records weren't a fluke. Some people can say it's the flute, the shoes, and the pacing light. I think the last three or four weeks have shown this guy's legit. He can kick. He can win major races. And, you know, I think he's, a, a, I don't know. It's just really impressive stuff by him. One thing about Perega, by the way, I did get on my phone yesterday. I was reading an article. John was talking about World Juniors, and he insulted Perega by saying, two years or three years ago at the last World Juniors, or two years ago, whenever it was, uh, Perega didn't even medal. Well, if you go back to the 2016 World Juniors, Borrega actually won it as like a 16-year-old, which is super impressive. So when I realized that fact, I was like, who wins a World Juniors at 16? That's incredible. It's weird that he didn't even medal. He was fourth in 2018. But I was kind of thinking like, oh, he's going to win pre, and I'm going to go on the podcast and say, oh, he's an all-time talent. Who wins World Juniors in 2016? So I just want to point out there, what you wrote wasn't, False, but it was a little bit misleading to say that he didn't medal in 2018, but he did. you didn't mention the fact that he won a gold in 2016. I was aware of that fact, but I just thought, you know, my point was him and him and Ingebrigtsen, Perth Chematai, you know, they all completed at World Juniors last time out. They didn't win. And then now they're Olympic champions. So I found that very interesting. And since we can't play, we have to play it both ways. People get mad if... Some people, there's probably different people. Some people get mad when ABC focuses on the Americans. And then other people get mad, though, if we don't mention an American in a race. If we talk about the foreigners and don't mention American, people are like, how dare you? And Paul Chalimo, the American, raced well, very competitive again. Um, just barely missed beating Borrega, was third there. My only critique of, of Chalimo in this race was 
he was a little bit far back. Like he fall, he's got, he's so competitive. And once he starts kicking, he's always in it. It kind of reminds me of Leo Manzano. If you get him near the win or get him near a medal, like he's, he's going to compete really hard, but like he was just in a bad spot. He was too far back. Like just stay up there, Paul. And then, you know, you might actually win one of these races. All right. How about the Bauman mile? We had high hopes for this. Jakob Ingebrigtsen, he did, so he broke the Diamond League record. He set a meet record. He ran a Norwegian record, 347.24, which is good. But I was a little surprised by two things. One, Stuart McSwain was the only guy who went with him. You know, they were out front. And Timothy Chariot, this was the first time I can remember Timothy Chariot not being near the front in a Diamond League race. He just hung off the pace. He was running in the second pack. He was never really in this. It was clear pretty much by halfway, Ingebrigtsen and McSwain, one of those guys was going to win. You're always going to pit Ingebrigtsen, the Olympic champ, in that in that spot. McSwain hung on to run 348 for second, but I kind of thought, I expected Chariot and Ingebrigtsen to be pushing each other towards 345 or 346. Uh, so instead, it was the pace was a little slower, and only two guys broke 351, which I c- kind of thought with the talent in this field, with it being two weeks off the Olympics, we would see a little faster times. So I don't know. That was, that was kind of my takeaway. And then of course, Matthew Centrowitz, we're like, Oh, can he push for the American record? He was never in this race. He finishes ninth and three fifty three. barely. He just ahead of his teammate, Mohamed, who is not a miler. This one was a huge disappointment all around. I thought the winning time would be faster. I thought it would be competitive. I've never seen, Timothy Chariot. I can't call him by his nickname anymore. People say it's racist, even though it's not. Potato Chim. Oops. But it, like, there's a few guarantees in the world. One of them is Tim Chariot goes with the pace. I mean, I, I've never seen it not happen. The gun goes off, the rabbits go out there, and Ingerbrutsen's on it, and Chariot's not. I just was like, I couldn't believe it. And this, you know, 347, it's like right at 330, right? This isn't. This was not that fast of a race. I was shocked. And then Centrowitz is like dead last at the beginning. And I'm like, okay, maybe it's really hot. And then I realized the pace isn't really hot. And I'm like, he looked like some guy he was just trying to beat his teammate to make sure that he kicked by Mohamed. So I'm done with Centrowitz for this year. Yep. We've heard all this talk week after week. I'm super fit. I'm super fit. He did the American record attempt. Something's not there. So I don't know if it was the focus this time, but I, I, the the more obvious answer is the fitness look maybe he's just not that good anymore in a fast race some let's runners steve employee 1.1 steve said he forgot center was in this race i most definitely didn't forget i was so pumped for this race uh, my wife started driving during the pre-classic because we were driving up for vacation i said i need and then we were going to end up switching right here because we had to pull over to store and I was supposed to drive, but I'm like, I need to, I need to not drive for three more minutes because I wanted to watch this race. I wanted to see Centrowitz go with it. I am so done with him. I couldn't believe he didn't go with it. This guy talked a huge game all summer, said he's going to get the American record, and then doesn't even go for it here. He went out and dead last. Now, was the thought process this race is going to be ridiculous fast? Everyone's going to go for this 345. I'm going to be in last and move up. But I could tell within 300 meters he was kind of screwed. I mean, he's in last, and there's too many people to pass, and it's not strung out. Now, maybe we should all blame it on potato tim and by the way stop this that's racist that's not racist it's racist if we call him potato tim but every single nbc broadcast that shows ellie purrier shows her on a dairy farm milking cows 
I mean, come on, people. It's not racist. People just like to play up farms for some reason. I don't know what it is. It's kind of fun. We live in a modern society. Whether L.A. Prairie's milking her cows or, or Potato Tim's raising his potatoes, it's cool. It's fun. It's a little, I don't know, stereotype about a farm. So that being said, I just, it, it, I would love to talk to St. George. If anyone knows him, someone ask him, was the plan to try to still get the American record or did he realize like, I just don't have it. I'm not in the shape that I thought he was fascinating to me. Where does he go from here? Is the question. Now there's a big message board discussion about that. I don't know because I had hoping to him this race. I'm like, if he can set the American record here, I'm going to forget about the, the poor Olympics. It's not going to matter to me, but just goes out and lasts and, and, and lays the goose egg. And this race did make me respect Alan Webb a little bit more. Everyone says a three forty six nine is only a three thirty. Well, I mean, I don't know how many reason to doubt the scientific conversion of the 1.0802, but people are not running the miles. And there was no excuses here because I watched the front. I said, watch the first 20 meters. On the Friday 15, I said, watch the first 20 meters. People normally fight and waste a lot of energy using their arms. No one wasted any energy here. There was no excuses except for Olympic fatigue. And, you know, this makes me think that Timothy Chariot's injury is worse than we thought. The fact that he didn't go with it. Oh, that, that was one of my takeaways, Robert. I don't think he's healthy. He said at the Olympics, after the race, he was still having some hamstring issue, issues. I think it was the other hamstring, the one that wasn't bothering him at the Olympic trials in Kenya. But he doesn't look healthy to me. So I think that's one of the reasons. He mentioned it after Tokyo, and I, I think that's one of the reasons he only ran 351 here. I think you guys are being a bit harsh on Centro. He has a big... I mean, yes, he said he was very fit, and he went for this American record attempt, but American record, I think the first thing he was trying to do, he's, he just wanted to break 350. And then once he realized he was in shape to do that, he said, oh, okay, now I might as well go for the American record. It's not that much faster. But you guys are acting like he's coming out and saying, I'm going to run the American record at pre and all this stuff. I, don't, I, I haven't seen that anywhere. I think we had a lot of expectations because he did try to do that at the Centro Mile and came short, but I don't know, like feel like it's a little harsh to be just ripping him for getting smoked in a diamond league when he's gotten smoked in many diamond leagues through the years. I just thought, Hey, this guy's in incredible shape. He thought he was in incredible shape. He's got an Olympic disappointment. I thought he would fuel that would fuel him to this guy less than a month ago. One is set an American record in the mile. It's hard to do by yourself with terrible rabbiting, but with a spectator, with a stands full of, of fans and, and perfect and rabbiting and pace the ways like you don't even go for it. Shocking to me. Shocking to me. So not good there. All right. And then we should talk a bit more about the sprinting. Noah Lyles, I was really thrilled to see him run that 19.52. I was like, finally, I, I was waiting for him and Michael Norman to look like the Michael Norman, Noah Lyles of old, and they never did all year. And then right here, I see 19.52. And after the race, he said, I was thinking about shutting down my season, not going here, but my sports therapist, as he said, I think he meant a sports psychologist, told him to go. The pressure's off. He runs better. Now, I had to be Debbie Downer and do the win conversion. 19.52 sounds like it's way better than what he's been running. But when you convert for a win, it's only like 0.07 better than what he ran in Tokyo. Andre Grass's time from Tokyo still converts better to this than this 19.52. So as good as he looked, Andre DeGrasse still may be better than him, but I thought this was a step in the right direction. Totally. There's no shame in losing to Andre DeGrasse, who is on fire right now. I question, before the race, I questioned his ability. Can he get it done in a diamond league? I didn't realize there was going to be a plus 2.9 wind. Andre DeGrasse always runs well when there's ridiculous wind readings. If you look at, you know, some of the times 
He ran Stockholm a few years ago. Remember his NCAA double back in 2015? That was with crazy wins. So if you told me there was going to be an illegal head, an illegal tailwind, I would have been like, oh, put all my money on Andre de Grasse. So he, he looked great in 100 here, running 9.74. And there's no shame in Noah Lyles losing to him in Tokyo in the 200. I think the one thing, though, you can say is like, Noah Lyles, he beat Kenny Bednarik at USA's. He beat him here handily at pre. So getting beat by Bednarik in Tokyo, that's a, a minor disappointment. But yeah, his, look, here's the thing. People have been painting this as like a down year for Noah Lyles, like not a great season. He still got an Olympic bronze medal. He ran 1952 and he won the US title. Like for a down year, that's still pretty damn good for most athletes. The thing is, he's going to be, he's going to need to keep bringing it next year because DeGrasse isn't going away and Arian Knighton's right on their heels. So he needs to, you know, he needs to be better than ever next year. But this was great. I was very happy to see him run well. And yeah, the 100 DeGrasse looked terrific. Fred Curley, 978. This was with a 2.9 wind. Bromel, you know, I don't think we can call his Olympic performance really a choke because he, he was fourth here. He was only the third American. Uh, and then Michael Norman, 9.90, again, windy. So any other takeaways from the 100, though? Well, no, just but back to that 200. Yes, he's had a decent year, John, but he, when you have the opportunity to win Olympic gold, you need to win it because there, there's some all-time greats that don't have Olympic gold. I mean, some of it's out of your control. In track and field, it's not like football where what you do, you have any impact on what someone else does. Someone's in a lane next year. If they run faster than you, they run faster than you. So... You know, Paul Turgut never won Olympic gold. He was an all-time great. So just, you know, in three years, could be Zarnell Hughes' time is the problem. So Zarnell Hughes? You mean Arian Knighton, right? Excuse me. Arian Knighton. Thank you. Okay, I want to talk about the crowds, Robert, because this is something we said we were going to be looking for. Tracktown USA, they have, that's what they call themselves out in Eugene. And this was a two-day meet. We had a nice slate of Friday races including a world record attempt in the 5,000 meters. And then you had the most, one of the most loaded diamond leagues, maybe outside of Monaco all season. This might've been better than Monaco. The fields were incredible on Saturday. And I was looking to see in the stands, they looked like to be a decent crowd, but didn't look anywhere close to full on either day. I don't know. Were were you disappointed by this? Do you just say they get a pass because it's COVID and things aren't totally back to normal still? Because I was watching Premier League games over the weekend. I was watching my beloved Brighton beat Watford. The stadium wasn't full there either. And I have to think that is partially due to COVID because normally you would not have an, you know, not anything less than a full stadium for the first home game of the season. So what do you make of the crowds at pre, Robert? What? John, every Premier League game I've watched has been completely packed. No, but, but Brighton versus Burnley on the first day wasn't full. Brighton versus both the Brighton games. I mean, granted, we're not playing like, marquee teams but it's still the first home game in both those games team seasons you would have thought that'd be a full house i think covid has something to do with it i guess lesser teams don't pack houses but crystal palace packed house look like to me um i think this is exposing some of the myth of track down usa and also there's a problem with the ticketing website i think before the meet i went and posted and started a thread it's like ticketing looking good i went on the ticketing website the day before the meet, and you could, there was only 730 tickets left that you could buy. So I'm like, oh, this is going to be packed. It wasn't packed. It didn't look bad on TV, but it's probably it's probably not even half full. I mean, a half full crowd can look kind of crowded. People are spacing out, that sort of thing. So 
somebody said in this thread, they're like, no, it's really track town Lane County. It's not USA. Like it doesn't really exist. There's a couple of theories there. One, this whole bullshit about, oh, in the summer in Eugene, everybody leaves town, they go on vacation. Okay. I, I think people have been coming up excuses for the last few years. Like when, when that meet, remember the, uh, what was that thing called? Tracktown Summer Series, nobody went. That same thing was presented there. But this was world-class talent. And it wasn't full. The other thing is, uh, this is an interesting theory. They're like, look, people, the track crowd, the home crowd in Eugene is people over 65. It's like people from back in the Bowerman days. And they're very worried about COVID. So that makes some sense. But they also said Robert Johnson, the head coach, not Robert Johnson, head of Letron.com, has made less of an emphasis on the home meets. You used to have, I think it was over 5,000 people who had season tickets to University of Oregon track and field meets. And now the stars don't run at home, a lot of these meets. There aren't the dual meets that they used to have. It's just not the emphasis that it used to have. And the, one guy speculating that's having an impact. But that's a couple thousand people. I think it just shows track and field is not that popular in Oregon. Okay, I want to say a few things here, guys. Of course, Track Town USA is is a myth in the sense of, I mean, Eugene's a tiny town just by definition. There's only like 160,000 people. Do you think there's a 20,000 people that are always going to go pack and track and field meet there? No. What I've said about about Track Town USA is there's a couple thousand of the Oregon faithful, like yes, and they're probably all senior citizens that no track go to the meets and that makes a difference you know yes it, there, there's a there is a core people but it's a couple thousand people it's not 10 to 15,000 people so unless you have people coming down from portland which is like a 2 hour meet th- th- who else is going to fill this meet i mean it's in the middle of nowhere eugene is not a major city you know so that th- this is the thing and you have to yes you need to build you know the, the you have to work hard to get this. And I'm wondering, is my namesake, could my namesake Robert Johnson possibly be in trouble at the university of Oregon? I don't think so. I think they're winning enough titles, but Vinland Anna was amazing there. He did the track and the winning and he built the community. He really spent a lot of time and effort in that. And you, and then even when he, he left coaching, he was still involved in that. Now he's gone. And I think you're starting to see the, you know, it doesn't just grow itself. So, that that's the main thing. Well, was was reading from the message board. The, you know, the first post was from George Malley. He used to be part of the um, Athletics West. Athletics West in Eugene, and you know, he said the only people left in Eugene in the summer are the hippies, transient, and crackheads. So he's obviously not a big fan of Eugene. But a lot of people are gone in the summer. It's a, it's a college town, so there's not a lot. Of, there's not nearly as many people, you know, as, as normal. And the other thing that Sprint Doc mentioned on the message board was the ticketing pricing went way up from years past, but Nike in the past has, has bust a lot of employees down there to try to fill the stands, etc. So I just think it's the middle of nowhere. You know, it's the main point. Well, then you sounded like you had some stat that was going to blow our minds. Can you blow my mind? I need to back off a little bit on this stat, but I'll, let me just read this thing. Meet organizers said attendance was just north of 5,000. 3,541 ticketed spectators plus those with credentials. But that is for Friday night. Friday night. So who knows what it was on Saturday? I do. Here's an article from Ken Go in 2017 criticizing how they had said they had 12,000 people. And he's like, look, the stadium seats eight. So... I don't know. Maybe there were 6,000 people. No, he, well, I've got the numbers here. So 
the register guide lists that the attendance was 8,937 for Saturday. And if you go by Ken Go's reporting, when he sort of counted the seats back in 2018, there was 8,500 seats in the old Haywood Field. So that would have been a sellout at the old Haywood Field if you trust the pre-classics announced number. And if you think the announced number might be inflated a little bit, that's a little bit less. It's not, not a horrible crowd, but it's not full. And, you know, it would have been, you know, you're, they're hoping on full houses next year. It's a horrible crowd because it's like the minor league baseball. We've done this a couple of years ago. The minor league baseball games in Eugene get more than more than this or, or close to it. it. It's not good. And this is why the meets need to move around. Look, folks, when they were getting the 20,000 people back in the trials in 2004 or 2000 or whatever it was, people hadn't been to Eugene in a while. Everyone wanted to go. If you're a track and field fan like me, you know, maybe in like every you would take your son to the, to the trials. You don't want to go to Eugene time after time after again. It's the same thing with the Olympics. The 2024 Olympics, you're going to have sold-out session after sold-out session at the night in Paris. You can book it right now, mark it down. This is my prediction. Why? Because every track and field fan in the world would love to go to Paris for the summer, take their family, and catch a track meet at night. So th- there's a reason to go to Paris. And if you're a track fan, you don't need – you're never going to have – I don't think it's likely to have like – 50,000 diehard track fans in Eugene, a town the size of Eugene, Oregon. But what you need is 50,000 fans, you know, that will fly to a world every four years if it's in a cool city, just worldwide. It's like, let's run. Let's run is the perfect example of what you need. You just need the hard, diehard followers to go to let's run. The same people that came here, we could fill an Olympic stadium every day if we had a cool location to do it every four years. So Paris will do very well. Very, very well. Mark my words. Well, yeah, I'm not surprised. Of course, Paris is going to do well. But the other problem I have here is like, okay, let's say that number is accurate, like 8,900. Well, what other city in the United States is going to get 8,900 people for a trap meet? Please tell me the number, the facilities or the cities that if you put the pre-classic in them, would get more than 8,900 fans. Because I'm not sure there's many cities that are actually topping that. I think if you had an LA one-off, you would get more than, you could get this sort of crowd. And Where in LA are you going to have it? What track? The Mount Sac track that they just built. Okay, that doesn't see eighty nine hundred. I thought they're going to have Olympic trials there. I thought it sees twenty thousand fans. Twenty thousand? Uh, maybe I need to look this up actually. So I think LA you have a big population base, but remember the Home Depot Center that they built? They were going to have that was going to be the future of track and field. That fizzled out. You have a good point, John. Track is not that popular. New Mount Sac Stadium. Sorry, ten thousand seven hundred thirty nine seats according to Google. So. Look, you think it might have sold out? I'm not certain. That's not in LA. That's a little bit outside of LA. I'm not, you know, but where else is it going to have it? Well, what other city has a stadium that could host the Diamond League with 10,000 seats that's going to outdraw Eugene? I just don't think there's many, if any. Austin, Austin, if you have a one off right after the Olympics in Austin, I think you could get 10,000 fans. I don't think you're going to do any worse than Eugene. I think you could do worse. I think in like a, a major U.S. city with right after the Olympics, you could get 10,000 people. But I'm, I'm curious about the ticketing thing. Why was it only showing 730 seats left? I think that's a problem because at the trials, people may not think they can get a good seat. What's the point of coming? And also people only have so much disposable income. If they're going to go to Worlds next year, they went to the trials this year. And if, a lot, if you're counting on a lot of people to fly, they can't fly out for everything. Well, it's just, it's just a lot. If you live in Portland and you went down to the trials for two weeks, 
Do you really, and you've got young kids or something, you're going to tell your wife, hey, I'm going, to, I'm go- another day, I'm going to go drive down, I'm going to waste another day at the pre-classic. It, it's just a lot. Like, there's only, I think if you're a track and field fan, you've already had your disposable income and your attention spent at the Olympic trials, if you're diehard, in Eugene or Portland, most likely. Yeah, well, I think it's a good point, Robert, because you look next to you, you've got the pre-classic, you've got NCAAs in Eugene. We don't know if USAs are going to be there yet. I would say the smart move maybe not have USAs in Eugene because the, the World Championships are going to be there. And most people are just going to say, why would I go to USAs when I can just go to Worlds? And the tickets for Worlds are not cheap. Right. It's just like you, you don't want to do the same thing over and over and over. You might do it once a summer. You're not going to do it four times in the summer at the same crappy location. All right, guys. I'm going to need to hit the beach pretty soon. Do we want to talk about World Juniors? The World Abbott World Marathon Majors expanding to Cape Town, which seems like a joke to me. What else? They're not expanding to Cape Town, Robert. You're on vacation. They're a candidate city to be in considered. Did you read the press release? Well, then they said they were a candidate city, but if they hit all the check marks over the next three years, they will join the series starting in 2025. Oh, well, maybe I take that back. Uh, Cape Town Marathon. I don't know. Are we just trying to go for like geographic diversity? I thought they were going to China. I thought China invested in the World Marathon Majors. And there's huge human rights concerns in China. So that would be very interesting. And I think we're going to see that with the Olympics in Beijing this year, that sort of stuff. So d- d- is it all about the money or whatchamacallit? Cape Town Marathon, I, I, I can't tell you a single person who's ever won it. Um, if they want to meet all the financial requirements, I, and they better be substantial huge fields, that sort of stuff. If we're just going for geographic diversity, I'm against the move 100%. But well, I think they're trying to expand their reach. Absolutely. That's why there are two candidate cities right now. One is Cape Town. The other one is the Chengdu Marathon in Chengdu, China. Uh, the Singapore Marathon was a candidate city. They've now dropped out. But yeah, if look, they're changing what it means to be a world marathon major. I view it. I viewed the world marathon majors. This is the elite of the elite. This is the best mar- six marathons in the world. And if you're expanding to Cape Town and Chengdu, eventually, I just don't think it's going to be that anymore. Because you look like Valencia. Valencia, I got an email from uh, Juan Manuel Patella, who is works at the Valencia Marathon. He was basically telling me, you know, the fields, are, we've got the half marathons in October, and then we've got the field December marathon. You know, our fields are going to be very good because I think, you know, we were talking about this last week. I said Valencia, they had insane fields in 2020. And he just said to be ready for very good fields again this year. If you're expanding to eight races, including Chengdu, I've never paid any attention to the Chengdu Marathon or the Cape Town Marathon before. It's going to be more about sort of growing the mass participation aspect of it, growing the global reach of the Abbott World Marathon majors, and less about getting the very, very best marathoners in the world together at a very small select group of marathons. And if that's what they want to do, that's okay. But, you know, we just our coverage I think is going to be more focused towards the races that are assembling the very best fields, which would be London, Valencia. um, And then whoever else can scrounge out the best fields. Yeah. It's going to be more like the diamond league. It's going to be a series of good races, but not necessarily the best, which would be better for the sport to have a few majors that are really pumped or to have this. I don't know. My battery is about to die out guys. So I may be losing you for good. Have a good rest of the podcast. Okay, thank you. Nice job for joining us on vacation, Rojo. 
Sad I didn't get a Rojo's rant, but maybe we'll have to wait till next week for that. Well, then, I want to talk about World Juniors. Uh, I didn't watch a ton of this meet, I'll admit, because I was away last weekend. So I caught up on the pre-classic. I watched a little bit of the end of some of these races from Nairobi, which hosted the World Juniors. But I had a couple takeaways. And one is Sasha Zoya. This guy, he's he's could be the next big star in track and field. He's got Zimbabwean and French parents. He was born and raised in Australia. And now he splits his time between Australia and France. He was a pole vault phenom. He has some age group world records in the pole vault. Yet he has decided to focus on the hurdles. And he now he has the world under 18 record in the 110 hurdles. And now he's got the fastest 110 hurdles time ever run over any height of barriers. He, he ran 12.72. The pre, the, entering this meet, the world record over the junior barriers was 12.99. He took that to 12.93 in the semis and then 12.72, which is 0.27 faster than anyone else in this event. It's insane. And Grant Holloway, after the race, you know, DM'd him, reached out. He's like, I need to have a word with this guy. You know, he's amazing. So... I like that there's a little mutual respect because then Zoya responded to him like, oh man, you know, I, I'm such a big fan of you as well. And they get a nice little home and home series now. Zoya, he's, he's never raced, to my knowledge, over the senior barriers, the 42-inch barriers. So that will be a little bit of an adjustment. But he said that's his next goal. And we've got next world championship in Eugene on Grant's home soil. And then 2024, we've got the Paris Olympics on Sasha Zoya's home soil. And he's going to be 22 years old for them, right in his prime. I can't wait to see this this battle between these two guys in the 110 hurdles. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And smart move by Grant, right? Sort of throw your rival, be friendly with your rival so he won't beat you. Could, could it be pretty crazy? I mean, Grant Holloway could go on to win two Olympics or whatever, but now you got the possibility. Like Noah Lyles, Grant Holloway, they never win an Olympics. I mean, these guys were like autumn, like almost locks for oh future stardom. There's no one younger in their events. They're so good, and oh, it's crazy. So, is he done pole vaulting, John? I mean, uh, that's the thing I don't get. I feel like if, if you're this talented at two events, I mean, he's the best junior pole vaulter ever. He's better than Mondo, right? No. Uh- under 18, or 17 under. I believe he has yeah. the under 18 world record. Uh, yeah, I think he's done, though, because it's just very hard to make. I mean, like I said before, we need Javon Harrison to talk to him and say, hey, you can do both. But it's tough. And also, he might look at the pole vault and say, God, Mondo is 21 years old and he's just going to be around. For, you know, I'm going to have to beat that guy for the next 10 years. Like, I'll just try my luck in the hurdles. So I don't blame him for focusing on one but it is pretty amazing it shows you what a freak talent that sasha zoya is that he can be so good at two pretty different events um but yeah i was excited by that and then the other thing that struck me from this meet was kenya totally dominated like i'm still kind of bummed usa tf didn't send a team to this meet they said sort of you know due to covid was shutting down some of our travel and i'd like to know how much is that is genuine like safety concerns or how much because remember 2017 world under 18 champs usatf did not send a team to that either and that was before covid they said that was a safety measure they were worried about sending a team to nairobi 
so I'm curious how exactly the decision making came about because USATF also isn't sending teams to like the Thorpe Cup, the decathlon meet, some of these other events. I think it's partially to save money and partially because of COVID concerns. But anyway, USATF wasn't there. Kenya dominated in the distances. I don't think they, you know, USATF's presence presence would not have affected, you know, some of these athletes in the distance races. And there the the performance that stood out to me was Emmanuel Wanyonyi in the 800 meet days. He ran 143.76, championship record, and he's 17 years old. Just turned 17, in fact, on August 1st. So that's a humongous talent. I mean, the only guy who's run faster at age 17 is Mo Amon, uh, the 2013 world champ, which I don't know what happened to him. He just sort of disappeared off the face of the map a few years ago. But that really stood out to me. I don't know. Were there any other performances? I thought it was interesting. Vincent Kida won the 1500. It's another guy in Bernard Uma's wrong guy athletics club so they've now won the world senior title with timothy chariot the last two world juniors with vincent kida and george manningoy they won the 2017 world senior championship with elijah manningoy and the 2017 world under 18s with george manningoy so that's quite a whole of 1500 titles for that training group uh anything else stood out to you from world juniors the 800 was good, John. This like Algerian guy, Mohammed Ali Gohanid. I'm sure that's a perfect pronunciation. <laughs> like he was leading it in the home stretch. These guys were going fast. It looked like he died up. And I'm like, oh man, this guy's not running that fast. And it's like he's at 144.4. So performance wise, I mean, that was, I mean, in the distance is the race of, of the championship. And and you kind of pointed out like junior success does not guarantee success at the next level. So, I mean, like George Manningoy, what did he do this year? Because his brother was a world champ. I just assumed that he would kind of go in that footsteps, you know, just continue to be a superstar, but he's only run, he's only raced a few times this year, run three thirty eight, And, who was the guy, John? Remember Renato Canova, like, guaranteed that somebody would be the 5,000-meter Olympic champ in 2020? Roald Quemoy. Yeah, what happened to him? Well, he's a he's still a good miler. He's just not... I don't think he, I don't think he even moved up to the 5K, though, right? He just has stayed in the mile, and I'm looking up his results right now. He, I mean, he did not make the Kenyan Olympic team. I've seen him in some Diamond Leagues. He was, he was fourth in the Bauman Mile, but... He was only fifth at the Kenyan Olympic trials. So he's good. It's just, it's hard to make the Kenyan 1500 team. Oh, he did run a 5k way back in 2015, 13, 16, but are we sure that's the guy? Yes. John, you got to love a little let's run.com. I just Google Canova, Kukwemoy, Olympic champion. And Here's a thread from two weeks ago. Renato Canova, where's Ronald Kimway? And then the poster says, you guaranteed he'd win the Olympic 5K, but he's not even on the Kenyan team. Canova still posts. And if you're a Let'sRun.com subscriber, you can get notified when people post. So I actually have Canova as one of the people who notifies. So every time he posts, he's one of the most prominent coaches in the world. I'll get an email, or you can just have it notify you in the dashboard and see his post. But um, Canova himself has not responded in that thread. Hmm. But... John, maybe the U.S. not having a team is good for like all these junior phenoms on the women's side that we've pumped up the last few years who haven't panned out. I guess mainly that would be Alexa Ephraimson and Mary Kane. But 
Louise Crane was pretty good. She made the Olympics this year. But I just think one thing in general, like, you don't know when your success, even if you're a superstar, enjoy your success. Don't think it's going to get better. Don't think the accolades, it's going to bring meaning or satisfaction to your life. You just got to be doing it for the right reasons because success can be very fleeting. And then even when you get like the world's greatest success, like Sydney McLaughlin or don't get success like <laughs> Shakari Richardson, you, you can feel a lot of pressure. So it'll be interesting because there is speculation now. And John, if you want to talk about this a bit, that Kenya is going to bid for the 2025 worlds. And there's a message board thread. People kind of acting like they're going to get it. It's coming from someone posting from Kenya. But the more logical choice, and I did not come up with this, you did, is Tokyo. Tokyo had an Olympics, no fans this year. There's a history of going back to an Olympic city soon after they host the Olympics. So Tokyo 2025 would seem to be a very good fit. I mean, you have the same issues with, with the heat. Hell, we've moved one to the fall. We can move it to the fall again. Do it like Doha. So anything, Kenya versus Tokyo, what do you say? Yeah, my expectation is that Tokyo will get the 2025 Worlds. That's just sort of the scuttlebutt I've heard. And you mentioned, yes, there is a history of returning because they build these big stadiums for the Olympics and they want to have some event to host. So we saw Beijing, they hosted in 2015, seven years after they had the Olympics. London hosted in 2017, five years after they had the Olympics. This will be 2025, four years after they have the Olympics. But I think there's a sense, yeah, Tokyo is kind of owed a world because they didn't have any fans. And it's a beautiful stadium. It's a fast track. I think it will be a great host. Tokyo, great city to host the Worlds. And then you get, yes, Kenya is bidding. They we This broke like last year or earlier this year. Inside the Games had a story about it. Kenya will bid to uh, win the 2025 Worlds. But there were some issues with this meet. World Juniors. It was kind of a tryout. This was the biggest meet Kenya's ever hosted. And you noticed at the start of the meet, they delay, They actually had to delay the meet. It was supposed to run from the 17th through the 22nd of August. It ended up running from the 18th to the 22nd. And World Athletics said, you know, due to COVID and also some of the logistical issues of, you know, shipping equipment, that that was why it was sort of delayed. Then I heard from a source, you know, who knows some stuff about this. And he was basically saying that Seiko's timing gear was held in customs at the airport for four days and they couldn't get it out. And this was just red, red tape that could not get cleared in time. And that this was, you know, not good for Kenya's chances of hosting a world. Because in this case, they actually adapted pretty well on the fly. The meat still went off pretty nicely condensed into a five-day format but you can't have the same kind of slip up when you're hosting the senior world championships in 2025 so this source seemed to think that this sort of this may have killed any chance this delay of them actually hosting the senior worlds which is a shame because i would have liked to i think kenya could offer a terrific atmosphere at some point for a world championships yes it's at altitude but uh, you know i think uh, i think for a one-time thing that's all right but my 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 assumption is that Tokyo will get the 2025 worlds and not Nairobi, if I had to guess. 
I mean, ignoring the fact that Africa hasn't had a world and they want to have one in Africa, Tokyo is just a more logical choice. But Kenya would be great in the sense, one of the financial guarantees, you need that. If the government wants to put up the money and guarantee it, because I don't know how much money you know it costs. It may not be the best way to, for Kenya to spend resources, but you're going to get a lot of tourists, so maybe it would be. Um, my only my concern personally would just be the safety in Kenya. I mean, I've been to Kenya multiple times, but you know they've had terrorist attacks in Nairobi recently. There's stuff going on in Somalia, but my assumption would also be if you're hosting the world, you bring out the full security forces, everything necessary to secure them, which they did here, which they did with the world youth. So um, maybe they could get 2020. We got to maybe we just go back to 2026. We skip the off year 2026, Kenya. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, I I'm just kind of curious if they're not going to give it to them because of the delay this year. They might just say, you know, you lost your chance. We'll look for a different city in Morocco. You know, we'll look for Marrakech hosted the Continental Cup in 2014, or maybe somewhere in South Africa. I don't know if they have any facilities. I don't know if any other African countries are bidding. Um, so it's I mean it, it's TBD on this. But, yeah, that's just sort of what I've been hearing. I mean, timing equipment getting stuck in customs, come on. Like, that's just inexcusable. I, I don't care what's going on. The government's hosting this thing. They should have, if that's really the case, I mean, that's just crazy. I could, you know, if, if logistically DHL or FedEx or whoever it is, like something happened and whatever, that's a different story. But, like, held up in customs? Oh, my goodness. Okay. We're running, you know, we're about, I think, getting close to 90 minutes here. So, and we do have the interview with the Leadville 100 champion, Adrian McDonald, coming up. So we should probably close this out here. Do we have anything else you want to hit? Well, then, I, one thing I think was interesting, Jenny Simpson has been dropping hints on Instagram. Of something, something is coming. She said, charging towards something new. And then she said, fun news is coming this week. She just turned 35. Some people on the boards are speculating she could be retiring. I, I do remember a few years ago, I got some teaser. I, think, I don't know if it was Jenny Simpson or from the New York Roadrunners. They're like, oh, big news coming with Jenny Simpson. I was like, oh, you know, she's going to have a baby. She's going back to the sleep hole. And it was like, she's been named a New York Roadrunners team for kids and ambassador. So I, maybe it's just some small minor thing like that. But... I don't know. It's kind of fun to think like, oh, what could this be? Like, what could this be for Jenny Simpson? I mean, a lot of speculation is she's retiring and to start coaching. I just went where Robert's mind went. What if she announced John and made Rojo's day? I'm going back to the steeplechase. But she'd have her hands full, I think, there now. That's one possibility. If she said I'm running the New York City Marathon, it wouldn't move the needle for me. I, I just think the marathon's too specialized. I don't think I would expect anything from her. Well, I guess I I guess she gets smoked if she ran the marathon, but I think it would be fascinating. Uh, no, I think the most exciting thing she could say is I'm going back to the steeple because I just want to see what it looks like. I don't think it's going to happen, but I don't know. I'll be watching Jenny's social media feed quite closely this week to see what that announcement is. I'm Googling her age here, John. She just turned 35 this week. I don't think you'd announce like a pregnancy this way. You know, all the real parties are done differently these days. And who knows? A lot of speculation. And we, we didn't even, we had so much pre-talk. We have two Diamond League meets, people. So get excited. 
We have Lausanne on Thursday and Paris on Saturday. We mentioned Lausanne at the beginning, but you need to become a supporters club member so you can get our, are we going to do the Friday 15? I guess the Friday 15 would work, John. We could break down Paris. I mean, excuse me, break down Lausanne and talk about Paris. So, well, we may have to make it a Thursday 15. Weldon, I do have a wedding I have to attend on Friday afternoon. So it's wedding season, people. I was at a wedding last weekend, another wedding on Friday, two and six days. Somehow I'll manage, but I do want to get in my takes on Lausanne and, and Paris. So hope maybe we, maybe we do a post Lausanne reaction show. I don't think that meat's really good enough to deserve it, but prove me wrong, athletes. Prove me wrong. And give people more time to listen to the Paris preview. So look for a Thursday 15, everyone. And Matthew Centrowitz, if you're out there, what's up, man? I don't think you talked to the media after pre. And I'm curious. I want to see Shakari race again. I mean, there's a lot of stuff still to look forward to. We have the two-day Diamond League final in Zurich, which is going to be absolutely fabulous. It's the way you should do it. It makes more sense than dragging well I don't, fine if you want to drag it out over two weekends like they used to that's fine but it's it's going to be kind of like a mini world championships does she carry race again she said she is so i think mo john wow we just this is unbelievable <laughs> we didn't even talk about we did it again <laughs> we did hilarious. it again the greatest generational talent in american distance running the woman who seems to have it all together mentally sort of with social media, the pressures, I mean, who knows what's going on behind the scenes, but she seems to have fun. You see no worry about anything. Not that I can pick up on a mental stress from just a 10 second clip, but outwardly everything seems so well. She, she didn't flinch once this year. She seems happy. I think Mo is on vacation right, right now, John. Did she race this weekend? I can't remember. Yeah, she only ran an American record in the 800, went out in 55. Just We've been saying, like, you know, she ran a negative split to set the American record in the Olympic final. So I was like, hey, she can go out even faster if she, if she can run faster if she goes out faster for the first lap. She followed that advice and went out in 55. It was a painful second lap for her, but. You know, this was, that was the first time I ever saw like any sign of strain or that she looked tired in any fashion in any race this season was her final hundred meters at pre. Yet she still holds on, breaks her own American record, one fifty five oh four, and then she said, "Yep, yeah, ending my season. I'm going on vacation to the beach with my brother and some friends." So well earned, and just it's insane. She she started running really fast in, in January as an eighteen year old. Then turn 19, just kept running faster and faster and ends her season with another American record. It's just, I don't know, maybe this is a this different article that we write for the website, but you posed it after the race. Was this the greatest season ever by an American distance runner? And I think you got to get a little creative with the word distance runner. If you factor in her 400 accomplishments and you can count those as like quote unquote distance stuff because she does run the 800, which is a mid-D event. And you could say, you probably say yes, but it's just a, a season for the ages from a thing, Mo. It's so shocking. I mean, we had Shakari to start the podcast, Sydney, and then we went to the first nine steeple. A, th- a thing has been like, we expected her to dominate this race, but she just keeps doing it. 
And after this race, I, you know, I quickly tried to give her something to do. I'm like, yes, yeah, this, this might be in the greatest season ever. And it, it was just so easy. I, I think a lot of life, what you're battling, even city is sort of expectations, but a thing seems perfectly happy, that sort of stuff. But this is after this race. I mean, when the split, when she was coming down, I'm like, God, her time was so fast. Like, what's she going to run? I started kind of doing the math and I'm like, Oh wow. Like well, if you were going to break the world record, this is how you do it. And she's still a long way from it. What is it? One point one fifty three point two, I think two eight. But well, look at the results here. First, a thing Mo one fifty five point oh four. Second, Kate Grace one fifty seven point six oh. Like she won by over two and a half seconds, and this was against the field. This was basically the Olympic final plus Kate Grace, Raven Rogers, Keely Hodgkinson, Gemma Riki. They went two, three, four in the Olympics. They're all in this race. She destroyed them. They were not even close to her. And it kind of made me want, I mean, look, Semenya, I think the rules are correct that DSD athletes should be, not be competing in the 400 through mile, but kind of made me want to see a thing Mo versus Casta Semenya. Yeah, I don't think anybody can run with her. I mean, I was wondering if like uh, Keely Hodgkinson, who was silver at the medal as a 19-year-old and ran, what, 150 six at the olympics i think she ran 155 as well right or was it 156 for some reason i had 150 i was thinking 155 but i'm like no she couldn't have because didn't the thing win by more than that but in this one she just wasn't there hodgkinson did run 155 in tokyo 155 88 so we gotta give her john a chance i think we we've sold her short this year because she's not an american and i think this shows it's it's not about race it's more about country um because we had brits saying like this girl is really good before the olympics like she could be a thing she ran 155.8 so she's you know within a second of a thing's best and a second is actually a decent amount of time but like with some improvement it'd be great if they could have a rivalry but yale's finest kate grace with another good performance but i, I don't know i hadn't the, the when you see pictures of the world record holder at 800 meters um, she looks like she's so roided up. It's crazy. I don't even, I guess when Castor was running, I speculated, wondered if somebody could get the record, but I haven't really thought about it much as a practical matter. And now I'm starting to wonder, even though she's still a long way away, but with her s- speed, I don't think there's any reason in her age. Whereas with Keely, I sort of wonder what's her top end. Maybe she has better endurance than a thing. And usually I'm critical of people not doing the Diamond League. I think do whatever you want. Enjoy the beaches. Going to Texas Beach? I'm, I'm, I'm not a Texas resident. I'm a lifelong Texan, John. Yeah, she didn't say what beach she was going to. Um, but yeah, world record, It's maybe it doesn't happen this year, but she said she's going for it. So I'm excited to see her chase. It's nice to have things to target at the chase. You know, the things to talk about in the sport moving forward. Like I think most, she's already accomplished so much. She's the Olympic champ at nine and the American record holder at 19. You know, you always need something else to be talking about, to stay interested in that event and that what her chasing the world record over the next few years, that's going to be an exciting storyline. Okay. Well, I'm glad we got the, a thing Mo mentioned in there. That would have been horrible if we had a whole podcast. And we didn't talk about, you know, probably the best distance runner in the United States right now. Yeah. Then, then the, Race baiters would have been out in full force, accusing us of racism. But, John, we can't have an 800-meter 
discussion for the first time ever with this person in the race and not mentioning her name. Ajay Wilson. This is probably the first time actually she's running 800 and I didn't even notice her. What? She was in this race? I didn't notice it either. Well then. Seventh place, two flat point two. I, I honestly, yeah, I had no idea she was in this race. It's kind of crazy. So I think it's a changing of the, well, it's definitely a changing of the guard, but next year will be a very big year for Ajay. She hinted that, you know, stuff wasn't right with her, but she never said why. But she was the greatest 800 meter runner for pretty much most of the, well, for yeah, most of the last decade. It'll be interesting to see what she can do next year. But nope, John, we're not about at the 800. We're about the ultra marathon. Coming up next, our talk with the Let's Run.com supporters club member who won the Leadville 100. It's pretty much, it's like UTMB in my book. Actually not true, but UTMB is this weekend. I've just received the text. Does not diminish this accomplishment. Join the supporters club and you too could win a major ultra marathon. John, what's his name? I didn't know his name, so I'm, I, I just was hoping you'd jump in with his name here. Yeah, I was waiting for you to give me a window. Well then, Adrian McDonald is his name, and we'll have him on right now. Oh, it's my pleasure to welcome on Adrian McDonald. He is the Leadville Trail 100 champion over the weekend in his 100-mile debut. He is also a Let's Run.com Supporters Club member, so we thank him for that. Uh he won, this was his first ever 100-mile race. He ran 16, 18, 19 to finish 40 minutes ahead of runner-up Matt Flaherty. He averaged 9.47 a mile over 100 miles. And this race, I, I didn't know that much about the Leadville. I knew it was a big historic race, but I didn't realize how high the elevation is for this thing. Average elevation is like probably about 10,000 feet or more. The lowest elevation of the whole race is 9,200 feet and it climbs as high as 12,532 so in addition to being very long it is also a very high altitude very impressive adrian thank you for joining us and congrats on the win thank you and yeah thanks for having me um so i guess before we talk about the race i'm curious like what is your running background uh you know in the sport um so yeah i started running in high school sort of to get fitter for soccer. And then I went to um, Gettysburg College, which is a D3 school in Pennsylvania. And there I there I started cross country, but I was mostly focused on middle distance. So I ran the mile and 800 mostly. And I, I graduated with um, a mile PR of 412, which I was... It's a big jump from like 440, which I ran in high school. Mm-hmm. And then um, after college, I tried to break 410 in the mile and I kept getting hurt. So I um, jumped up to road marathoning and I was in Boston at that time. And so I did that for a few years. Um, my most notable finishes were a 53rd in 2018 in the sort of hurricane that year. And then I ran 225 at Grandma's Marathon in 2019, 225. And what inspired you to take up ultras? Like, when did you run your first one? What was your longest race before this uh, Leadville Trail 100? Yeah, so I was signed up for Boston in 2020. And that obviously got canceled and I was pretty fit. So I'm like, what should I do with this fitness and no races? 
Um, so I decided to go after the fastest known time on this sort of local time trial route up our up um, up a mountain in Horsetooth Mountain Park called Towers Road, and it's sort of a place that people have always gone to sort of test their mountain climbing, mountain running. Um, so I trained for that. I ended up missing it by one second. And then um, another guy came into town three days later and broke it by a minute. So I didn't end up getting it, but I sort of fell in love with uh, the trail running at that point. Um, and then I guess the other thing is two weeks before grandma's marathon in 2019, I ran a race up Mount Evans, which is a 14er here in Colorado. It's, they call it the highest road race in America. And um, I won that race by a pretty good amount. We didn't get to finish at the top that year because of ice, but um, I feared that I was pretty good at running at high altitudes. And so that's what puts sort of Leadville in the, the back of my head. Yeah, because you're based in Fort Collins now, but have, where were you, were you born in altitude or where were you, uh, where'd you grow up? I grew up in uh, Westwood, Massachusetts, so not far from you. Yeah, that's right. So wait, what high school did you go to? Westwood High School. Westwood High. All right. Jeff Moriarty was, were you, did you overlap with Jeff Moriarty at all? Yeah, we ran together every day. <laughs> okay, because he was, he was really good in the 800, I remember, in Massachusetts, and then was pretty successful mid-D guy at Columbia, so... Um, and then um, John Blade, who you ran with, is um, he's a friend of mine too. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, John's one of my uh, a good friend of mine, teammate from Dartmouth. Well, that's very cool. Uh, so that's amazing, though, that you were able, like, you're a mid D guy in college, not from altitude, and now you're out running hundred mile races at like ten thousand feet. That's quite a transformation. Like you just you just realized like after these couple races that you, this was something you're pretty good at. And that's why you sort of pursued it. So like, when did you get the idea to do Leadville then? I sort of had it in the back of my, my head that I wanted to try that. And then since all the road races were canceled, um, the trail races, out, especially out here in Colorado, were still going on. And so I just sort of said, I'm going to hop into this now. Um, and I don't know with me, it was this way when I jumped from like running miles to the marathon, like it's just whatever gets me excited and the hundred mile distance got me excited. So what did you go in? What was your goal going into the race? Did you think you could win? I wouldn't have said no. I don't think I can win, but I wouldn't have like bet on myself to win. My goal was to run 17 hours, which it usually would have been top three. Um, and this goal, it's so hard to know like how to put a goal on something when you've only, the previous furthest race I'd done was 50 miles. So um, I have a friend and mentor, Nick Clark, who um, he was a really good ultra runner about 10 years ago. So I just asked him like, what should my goal be? And he said, 17 hours. Um, so that's where that came from. So yeah, so I thought, I guess I would have been confident saying I think I can finish top three, but winning was sort of um, wasn't my top goal. It was sort of like if things fall, 
certain way, then I think maybe I can win. Yeah. Well, you got a pretty healthy margin. I mean, 40 minutes up on second place. When, when did you break away and you know, when did you know that you had it in the bag? Um, so I took the lead right at about halfway and then the, um, the high point of the course hope pass is it's about a mile 45 and then you go down, run a little bit flat for three miles or so and turn around and go right back up. Um, and so I took the lead on that sort of flat section and then sort of pulled away on the uphill and the downhill and then um, sort of just extended it the rest of the way. And I don't know, I was pretty confident once I took the lead that I was going to win because um, I was just feeling good and sort of, and I was just sort of still excited about it all and like excited to do Hope Pass again and excited to, once you did Hope Pass for the second time, you got to pick up your pacers, run with you for the last about 40 miles and I was excited to see them. So um, I was pretty confident. There was a little bit of um, fear because it's an out and back. You see the whole field when you, you run by and um, there's uh, Anton Kaprichka who finished third and I had watched this documentary about him. And so I was sort of like starstruck to see him and he, he looked really fresh um, and there was another runner, Ian Sharman, who'd won the race four times, I think. And I saw him and he looked really fresh. So I did like have that to keep that fire under me, but I, I was like feeling good. So I, I was pretty confident at that point. You know, I think I read in one of the articles, it might've been Nick Clark, uh, you know, that you mentioned as your mentor in one of your pieces that he, he said that you looked very fresh as well when he picked you up. Like a lot of times it sounds like the paces we should say are, are legal for this race for like the last uh, 40 miles or whatever, you know? Yeah. And he basically said a lot of times when they pick up people to pace them at the end, they're sort of lagging. They, you know, it takes a lot of motivating to get them going. It didn't sound like it was that way with you and that you still seem pretty, you know, pretty fresh and pretty able to go on your own. They have these aid stations and you, you sort of hear about people sitting down and eating a bunch of food. And I just wanted to just keep going. So I'd uh, get into these aid stations and sort of get my snacks from the the bin that we brought and then just keep going. And um, I think they were prepared to sort of do a lot more babysitting than they had to do. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're a good, uh, a good kid. Uh yeah. I also read one of your paces was Tate Rutherford. And is this the same? Is this Tate Rutherford who ran at Columbia? Because I'm always looking for the Ivy League connection there. Yeah. Uh, and his claim to fame is winning the Heps 3K out of the slow heat. 2014 at Dartmouth. I remember it well. Uh, Thomas Awad and Will Gohegan were battling it out in the, the quote-unquote fast heat. And I still remember Thomas Awad like, Flowtrack did a documentary or like a little clip of that weekend and him finding out from his coach, Steve Dolan, that he got, he didn't actually win the title because he got beat. It was like, it was really crazy. And the whole Columbia section was like chanting, take one heps, take one heps. It's pretty nuts. So that's interesting. So he was one of your paces as well. How do you know him? 
So Tate grew up in Fort Collins and he did his fifth year at CSU. And um, I just met through mutual running friends mm-hmm. and he was good. He hadn't, he gave me a scare about six weeks ago. He said he hurt his uh, planner and wouldn't be able to do it. So I was a little like panicked trying to find backup pacers, but um, I don't know if he, he said he hadn't run for four weeks until he was pacing me and he had 10 miles and um, he was breathing pretty hard and like sprinting up to get water bottles. And uh, I think he was pretty beat by the end of it. Well, he soldiered on, helped you to to the victory. So that's awesome. All right. So I want to know like, the the idea of running a hundred miles in one go for me is just insane. Like I would never ever do it. So how do you train for a hundred miler? Well, yeah, the first part of that is like, it is very, it was sort of intimidating to think like, Oh, I have to go around a hundred miles. And what I've been telling people is that, or what I told people leading up to it, like, I'm not really thinking about it like that. I'm just thinking that I'm going to go run all day. And like, I've done other things all day like I've done big backpacking trips where you're just sort of hiking all day um so that's what I sort of thought about that and then for my training um Andrew Epperson is my coach and he's the assistant at CSU and um he also ran world championships in 2019 but um he had never coached an ultra marathoner before. So we were sort of experimenting together, which was kind of fun. And a lot of what we did was similar to marathon training. Um, But what we added in was um, like getting elevation gain. So in in addition to like a goal of a hundred miles a week, say I was trying to get 10,000 feet of elevation gain. And so my, midweek long run it was still about the same distance like 13 miles or so but i'd try and get i'd go into the the foothills and do it there and instead of taking 90 minutes or 40 minutes it would take two and a half hours and then same with the the long runs like i was doing not much further than 20 mile long runs but they would take like four or five hours as opposed to two and a half hours. And then the other main difference is we do um, back-to-back long runs. So on Friday, I would do like a 16 to 20 mile run with some up-tempo, which is sort of like standard marathon long runs. But then on Saturday, I would follow that up with a big, 20 mile run in the mountains that would take, like I said, like four or five hours. Okay. Oh, that's great. That's great. So certainly grueling, but, uh, clearly paid off for you. I'm curious now, now that you are the winner, uh, you know, Leadville pretty, you know, one of the biggest, uh, ultras in the United States, are you going to go back to the roads and try to run some marathons now that they're around? Or do you, do you stick with the ultras and the trail stuff? Like what's next for you? I'm definitely like, gonna stick to trail running i do still have some road running goals um i want to get that top 50 at the boston marathon um that's sort of the my hometown race and 
that's the goal I've always had. Um, I don't know when I'll do that. I don't have a qualifier for next spring. Um, but yeah, I think, I think this 50 mile, hundred mile distance may be my sweet spot. There's just something, it might just be something about me that allows me to do it pretty well. So like UTMB that's going on right now, is that something you'd want to try, try to tackle down the road? Yeah, maybe. And there's Western states. There are so many. The cool thing about trail running is that you can sort of pick the races that match your abilities and your location where you can train. The thing about UTMB, it's a, it's a lot of sort of hiking, like, uh, elevation gain, like much more than Leadville. So um, I would have to sort of get into the mountains a lot more, which which might be difficult, but I'm also like, I want to race the best people now. So, and that's where they are. They're at Western States and UTMB. All right. Well, that's exciting. I'm, you know, looking forward to seeing how you fare in that. And I, I before I let you go, I do want to talk just some regular running because you're, you know, supporters club member. We don't actually cover a ton of trail stuff, as you may know, on, you know, our podcast. So like what, what's exciting you in the sport right now? Like what sort of stuff are you into? What events, what personalities, what do you, what's most exciting right now for you as a fan? So I watched pretty much everything at the Olympics. Like that was great. I just think it's so cool that people are trying to run so fast. Uh, like the fifth, the men's 1500, for example, they ran 328 in the, in the final and that, you know, just sort of refreshing. And then same with the, 5k was really fast um, so there's that i'm excited for all the marathons this fall it's going to be crazy just sort of one after the other what else we have the obviously the world championships here next summer and then i have i'm coaching this i'm coaching a high school team this fall or i'm assistant coach at mountain view and we have a senior on the team who ran 411 and 915 at altitude so that's something i'm excited about well what's his name uh jackson shorten okay all right yeah I'll keep an eye on him for nxn or footlocker whatever he ends up running yeah well that's awesome i mean appreciate you making the time to uh talk to me today adrian again congrats on the the big victory last weekend at leadville um huge accomplishment Thank you. And I should add for uh, Robert that I wore a super shoe. Um, I wore a road running shoe in the race. The, um, I actually got the idea from when you guys had Ben True on, and he was talking about the Saucony Endorphin Speed. So that's what I wore during the race. Okay. All right. We've got that full disclosure there. It'll be good to know that. Yeah, Ben. Well, Ben. Ben actually isn't sponsored by Saucony anymore, so that's interesting. He probably I don't know how, what he'd think about that, but yeah. Uh, thank you, Adrian, and yeah, thank you for being a supporters club member as well. And best of luck with uh, whatever's next for you in your career. All right, thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. And hey, you think that big name sprinter who finished last place? You think she was using the Airway Performance mouthpiece? Maybe you should check it out, and maybe you should too. Go to airwave.com, link in the show notes, and use code LR10 to save 10%. Check it out now.